Full Disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Here with PBS NewsHour's senior foreign affairs producer on our planet, huge and yet so small, so interconnected, versus the worst pandemic in a century. Stay with us. This show airs on NPR member station VPM News, using the power of media to educate, entertain, and inspire. Subscribe at link fullderadio.com. Joining me from Arlington, Virginia, is Morgan Till, Senior Producer for Foreign Affairs and Defense at the PBS NewsHour. This is a position he's been in since late 2015. Uh Morgan has reported all across the globe, Iraq, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Syria, Lebanon, Brazil, South Korea, reporting on war, revolution, natural disasters, and overseas politics. Uh, sir, how are you considering? I'm uh, I'm doing quite well, Robin. Thank you for having me on the program. Well, thank you for coming on in a snap. I just, before all else, I want to know how you get your head around something like this. It seems like a uh, few weeks ago, it seems like. It feels like we were doing New Year's resolutions and planning the year ahead. Mm -hmm. And one moment, you know, we're taking out the military leader of Iran, and they're talking about a broader war in the Middle East and World War III, and that is completely forgotten now that this pandemic, this once-in-a-hundred-year pandemic, has truly brought the, the world to its knees. Yeah, I, I, was, I was, as we all are, scrolling through Twitter the other day, and our, our NPR colleague, uh, Steve Inskeep, was, was charting that that um, course from the beginning of the year with the killing of Ghassem Soleimani and and uh, on and on and threats of war and and impeachment and everything and he's and I just tweeted back at him I'd like a do over <laughs> um, you know it's been that kind of year so far and now uh, I think there's the realization especially over the last ten days or so and and in the last couple of days is the horrific death count um, spikes here in the United States that. This may be the biggest story of our lifetime. Um, you know, a, a lot of us covered September 11th. A lot of us have covered the wars since then, which were globe shifting and globe tilting. Um, but this has a different feel. I mean, you know, as we speak, there are 10 million Americans who have applied for unemployment insurance benefits in the last 10 days. That's a just a shocking number that didn't happen during the Great Depression. We're looking at a period where instability in this country is just going to be widespread economic instability, I should say. Uh, and then looking at the global picture, the the Secretary General of the United Nations said the other day that he thinks it will take one-tenth of global GDP to get the globe back on track, which is an astonishing number. Um, I mean, the United States has already passed a $2 trillion uh, relief package. Uh, it's not really a bailout. It's a relief package and, and direct cash infusion. The Fed has opened every spigot it has. And we're looking at, uh, you know, the, the optimistic scenarios are that we're looking at June before people are really starting to get out and about again. Is there something approximating a chief global health officer that every country or most of the countries? It respects the hermit kingdoms, the rogue states, the Western democracies. It's a complex question and a complicated question. I mean, obviously, one of the there is the World Health Organization and its director general, its secretary general, um, but the WHO itself, which you know was um, accused, at least by the United States and some others, of delaying declaration of the coronavirus uh, epidemic and then pandemic. Um, some critics accuse it of knuckling under the pressure from the Chinese. Um, there are um, guidelines that they put out. Um, they do um, declare pandemics. They have declared this a pandemic. It's a complicated question because there's so many disparate interests for different countries. 
Um, I mean, for all intents and purposes, the chief medical officer of the United States is not the Surgeon General right now. It's Tony Fauci, um, whom people have invested an enormous amount of faith and trust in um, to guide America through this, um, separate and apart from the president's leadership on this. But in terms of the globe, it's kind of it's kind of a mixed bag because, um, you know, and it starts with the the the. how the Chinese handled this in the late months of 2019 um, and how the WHO has handled it through the first part of 2020 um, and has been accused of just being a laggard on the subject in some respects. Morgan, I'm looking at the Wall Street Journal and there's a headline that uh, Italy, which is one of the you know, three or four huge ground zeros in this entire global pandemic. It's suggesting that Italy's coronavirus death toll is far higher than reported. Uh, we are now looking at uh, Italy's official death toll from the virus stands at just over 13,000, the most of any country in the world. In the areas worst hit by the pandemic, though, Italy, the Wall Street Journal says, is undercounting thousands of deaths caused by the virus, uh, indicating that the pandemic's human toll may end up being much greater and infections far more widespread than official data indicate. So can you walk me through this? Obviously, tremendous amount of disproportionate amount of attention given to Hubei province in China and that wet market and and uh, the, the shutdown of, of, of Wuhan. But how in the world did it then emanate to northern Italy and then, say, the religious epicenter of Iran? How do you how do you get your head around that? Uh, so I'll start with with uh, anecdote from a very, very close friend of mine who runs an emergency room here in the D.C. area who uh, has been a physician for 20 years and um, has seen it all from, you know, uh, extraordinary violence when he was a resident in Baltimore to, you know, suburban America to everything in between. And one thing that he told me really stuck with me, which is he believes and a lot of the physicians he works with and nurses believe that the coronavirus in some in some form or another has been here for several months prior to our recognition of it. Now, I don't know that there's data backing that up, but it was an interesting supposition because his hospital has been filled with flu patients up until a few weeks ago. He said it was the worst flu season he had seen on record, at least in his experience. And and a good number of the people who were in there for the, quote, flu were not testing positive for the flu. So I think there is every reason to believe in some respects that the, that the disease was on the move beforehand, um, before it was really recognized in the United States and by the WHO as, as a global threat. Be that as it may, this is a token of globalization. Um, you know, Ube province, Wuhan, city of Wuhan, many people had never heard of before the middle of January, is a city of 11 million people. It would be, what, the third largest city in the United States? Um, wow. There's enormous, um, you know, third or fourth, um, there's an enormous amount of travel, in and out trade, travel, tourism, um, the, the interconnectedness of the planet is um, part and parcel of both our economic growth globally since World War II, but it's also in this day and age a thing that can seed um, seed disaster in some respects by the by the by virtue of the fact that people travel so often. There's so much global trade. Um, you know, one interesting thing I was talking to one of my correspondents, Jane Ferguson, who's based in Beirut, a wonderful reporter there. There was great concern when it was exploding in Iran, that pilgrims, Shia pilgrims were coming back to Lebanon from Iran and bringing the virus with them, likewise to Syria. 
Um, and then when you confront the great inequities in global public health systems, um, you know, Italy has a very good healthcare system and it's near the breaking point or has broken or is buckling. United States uh, contends that it has the greatest healthcare on the planet and we're seeing, you know, nurses and doctors having their own scrubs and masks sewn for them by relatives or companies. Um, there's no accounting for the fact that um, you need to prepare for these kinds of things in a way that is is somewhat foreign to our notions of how you prepare for war or economic calamity or that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And it's it, the, the speed with which it has done this. You know, if you remember back, you're a financial reporter. You remember 2008. You know, it started with Bear Stearns in, in February or March. And then things sort of cascaded over the months. This happened in a matter of days. And I don't think anyone, you know, really since the onset of World War II has seen such a globe-tilting and globe-mangling uh, event occur with such with such rapidity. Well, everybody keeps pointing back to the great Spanish flu of 1918, 1919. There were not <laughs> direct flights from various mega cities on the coast of China to uh, you talk about Iran. I mean, if, if you know, in Tehran, there's been a tremendous influx as in many cities in sub-Saharan Africa of Chinese workers coming in to build out railroads and subway tunnels and the like. It's so hard to connect the dots on this and in, in something that uh, the, the paradox being that China in 2020 is the ultimate command and control centrally planned state. And when something like this happened, they didn't waste any time in locking down uh, Wuhan um, and, and you know, taking it to the kind of the, the, the nth degree of, of uh, you know, draconian measures. Uh, and at the same time, you know, two, three months after that first started, they're being criticized for undercounting the numbers and not being as transparent maybe as they should have been with the rest of the world. Yeah, I mean, there's been very stark criticism, not only from the United States, uh, but from others about about how the Chinese reacted. Um, the New York Times and others have reported out some very good stories about the internal dissension uh, in the both the dissension within the ranks, such as such as um, the blame shifting from the top down to the local officials who sort of are too scared of their own shadows to take um, executive and, and rapid action without the say-so of the central government, but also the delays in revealing that this pandemic or this epidemic was beginning in Wuhan. You know, the United States, according to Bloomberg intelligence assessments um, from Wednesday, the 1st of April, said, you know, the U.S. intelligence community assesses that they vastly undercounted both the number of dead and the number of infected. At this point, you know, the United States has greatly surpassed them in both. Um, mm. And, you know, China is a country that is f almost four times the size of the United States. There's a lot of um, sort of reckoning about how countries have dealt with these issues, and especially China. Um, there was something of a kind of um, uh, a soft detente, you want to say, in the last couple of days of the, of the War of Words. But it began again on Thursday when, you know, the Chinese foreign ministry went after the United States again, saying – the U.S. can't get its act together. Why are they accusing us, essentially, of, of undercounting mm -hmm. when we've been very transparent? And obviously, the notion of transparency and the, and the Chinese Communist Party do not go hand in hand. Um, but be that as it may, um, you have kind of a dual set of messages here. The president last week calling it the Chinese virus. Uh, his top lieutenants, including the Secretary of State, referring it to as, as the Wuhan virus. I won't get into the arguments surrounding that. But there was a very conscious 
decision to uh, accuse the Chinese of essentially loosing this on the planet without proper recognition of how to handle it. That softened somewhat. Now you see major shipments of aid coming from China sure. to the U.S. Um, the Chinese have also been called on the carpet for sending aid that doesn't work, testing kits that don't work to to Western Europe and other places that have been faulty, which is you know, almost worse than sending nothing at all. Morgan, couldn't they have gotten much more religion? I mean, SARS, the, the worst of the outbreak was in 2003. And while it was certainly scary at the time, it seems de minimis or penny, penny ante in, in comparison. Why didn't China uh, crack down on wet markets and the, and the trade of things like pangolins or, 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 or bush meat? Again, this goes back to the paradox of it being the ultimate surveillance state, the ultimate uh, command and control economy. But this is something that they just let Several times you saw the the swine flu, various other seasonal flus. There was a big culling of the the pig population right. uh, several years ago. It seems like they had many warnings. They have, um, but you know there there are a couple things at play. Um, if you look off the coast of China across the Taiwan Strait to Taipei, they got religion, and, and I'll come back to China in a second. But they, as we reported on the News Hour on Wednesday, a really elaborately interesting piece reported by my colleague uh, Nick Schifrin and Dan Segalen. After SARS, the, the Taiwanese took it to heart that they would never get flat-footed again. And the numbers during SARS is they had a, lot, they had a substantial number of cases, several hundred on, on order, and, and a substantial number of deaths because SARS was quite a deadly outbreak. Um, it goes to the virtue of having a smaller, more controlled place. Taiwan is a democracy um, and has gone through some struggles of its own on that score. But they were able to regiment a a a complete top down all of government effort to um, essentially have a a la carte um, testing treatment tracking regimen in a box. I don't get the notion that the Chinese have had the same thing. There were um, you know the head of China's CDC and others have um, there was some reporting last week that they have they have they had also done much like the United States some wargaming on this essentially some tabletop exercises worst case scenarios and that those warnings weren't heeded much as they were with um, with exercises done in the United States that had been done you know starting you know after in in earnest after September 11th when there was great fear if you call, recall, to the anthrax attacks about some kind of bio-attack, bio-weapon attack on the United States. Those efforts have, have waxed and waned through the years. But, um, you know, the question about China's um, uh, readiness for something like this, you know, it's it, there's a great phrase that everyone's always fighting the last war. Um, United States decided to ramp up its uh, airline security after – planes crash in the World Trade Center and the Pentagon. Um, you know, China um, may be looking down the road and we ourselves here in the United States may be looking down the road at, okay, now we have to take this as a real threat. How do you build up this kind of capacity? Now, the Chinese, as you say, have a different mechanism wherein they can just go into a town in a city of 11 million people and shut it down and find people and frankly disappear people who break that curfew and that diktat. Um, the United States as an open society, that's harder to do. Um, so there are a lot of questions coming out of the out of this, you know, down the road. Um, you're already seeing some evaluative, evaluative efforts being launched of how do you stop these things in an interconnected globe when there's so many disparate government systems and, and regimes 
across the planet? How do you get all on the same page? Um, it's a it's a question that greatly predates this, but now in this era where a a virus to which no one has immunity can just spread across the planet within the space of a couple of months, um, it's a it's a question that everyone's going to have to engage with pretty soon. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Morgan Till. He's senior producer for Foreign Affairs and Defense at the PBS NewsHour. Uh, Morgan, I, I want to get to Iran. Uh, that's where I was born. And this has been a special hell, a hellish season, a hellish beginning of the year. And this is the Persian New Year kind of come, drawing to a close for Iran. Not only are they coming off of last year's much more mundane um, sanctions tightening, hyperinflation, a lack of access to uh, certain goods, uh, uh, you know, thriving, uh, overpriced black market economy. But this year starts with... Um, Qom and other cities in Iran becoming one of the global epicenters of this pandemic. I mean, it was it was racing out of control. And at the same time, and we're going to unpack this story as well, Saudi Arabia and Russia are engaged in a crude oil price war, and it tanks the main source of revenue for the Iranian economy. So it's like they're taking a triple punch. Yeah. I mean, if you look at what the United States maximum, so-called maximum pressure campaign has done since the Trump administration took over, the components of which are chiefly, you know, removing the United States from the uh, JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal, um, and tightening the screws on every sort of sanction possible, reducing Iran's daily oil output below a million barrels a day, just absolutely crushing their economy. There is, you know, um, sanctions on, you know, there are almost weekly announcements from the Treasury and State Departments of new sanctions on different Iranian entities or persons. Then you confront both what happened in, on January 3rd with the killing of Ghassan Soleimani, um, which you know sent a shudder through the region uh, and frankly globally with, oh God, what's going to happen now? Um, these, these sort of low intensity back and forth between the United States and Iraq in Iraq, I should say, not in Iraq, but between the United States and Iran in Iraq um, with missile strikes and such. And then you get inside Iran where we actually have a, a, a wonderful correspondent based in Tehran named Reza Seya, who has done several pieces for us about the um, impact of coronavirus there. When you have people in the top rungs of the Iranian power structure – uh, outside the theocracy, but you know Ali Larjani, the the parliament speaker, a very well known and very powerful man in the Iranian government, he's tested positive. There have been several top officials who've died, officials who were part of the cadre that took the hostages in in Tehran in 1979, who have died. Um, you know the reliability of the numbers of dead in Iran are also in question. Um, there were some reports of uh, some modeling showing several weeks ago that there could be a million dead in Iran. Um, you know, those wow. models are, are quite eye-popping, but by any stretch of the imagination, they are, on, they are already having um, an, a terrible time under these sanctions. Um, and the other component of that is, well, the United States says – we don't sanction anything that that gets humanitarian aid in there. There's quite a debate over how that is. The Europeans who have also been looking for a way around the American sanctions and set up their own mechanism last year to do that have been trying to ship humanitarian aid to Tehran. Um, but the upshot is that you know it's shaken the government there. Um, but in 40 years, you've seen 
you know, in the last, I should better say in the last 10 years, you've seen more challenges to the government there than you had in the previous 30 with, you know, the green revolution, um, the, you know, the uprisings of late 2017, which were very widespread. And now you have um, yet another challenge, invisible challenge to the regime happening in this time where the United States is put every screw it can short of overt military action in the country to the Iranian regime. You know, crude oil is trading around $20, $25 a barrel, $30 a barrel at some point. Uh, but uh, Iran's fiscal break-even price for them just to pay the bills and, and pay the various constituents of the uh, Islamic Republic and whatnot is multiples of that. Indeed, you have uh, Joe Biden, the presumptive Democratic uh, presidential nominee uh, today, calling for sanctions relief for Iran during the coronavirus pandemic. Um, he specifically called for, quote, issuing broad licenses to pharmaceutical and medical device companies, easing the path for international banks, transportation companies, and insurers to provide medical treatment and issuing new sanctions guidance to those groups and international aid organizations regarding how they can combat COVID-19 in Iran. Uh, let's get to that oil price right. collapse, which is a kind of a parallel financial crisis. Uh, this starts many weeks ago. I mean, this is something that nobody saw. I guess it kind of gets to the the, the, the the true Machiavellian nature of Mohammed bin Salman, the, the young uh, controversial leader of Saudi Arabia, that when he got the first indications that this was truly a pandemic, and there's this disagreement between Saudi Arabia and Russia of, of how much output should be cut in a, in a slowing economy, that the first reaction from Mohammed bin Salman uh, when you're looking at a demand collapse is to flood the global market with Saudi oil, which is the cheapest on the planet to produce, uh, presumably to snuff out uh, the, the U.S. shale oil producers and Canada. Yeah, I mean, and you saw a just, uh, you know, an absolute panic among those shale producers in the United States and in Canada who, you know, as you know, shale and tar sands are much more, much greater processing um, intensive efforts to extract oil. The United States is now a net, the largest net exporter on the planet, but that sent a shutter through those markets. Um, and you had actually in the same vein, you know, Russia, the, the Russian economy depends enormously on its fossil fuel exports, gas predominantly, but also enormous amounts of oil, uh, which have been sanctioned in some part by the United States for its interference in the 2016 election. But you saw this um, drive, you know, a real kind of showdown between Mohammed bin Salman and Vladimir Putin and Vladimir, many of Vladimir Putin's longtime lieutenants, uh, one of his top lieutenants, Igor Sechin, who runs the Rosneft, uh, conglomerate in Russia must have been, you know, just, you know, uh, as they say in Brooklyn, plotting. Um, you know, it's um, and now you had in that in the wake of that decision, which drove gas prices through the floor. Um, the president tweeting at that point, some I think it was about three and a half weeks ago. This is great for American consumers. Cheap gas is always good for American consumers. Um, to the point where, uh, you know, you know that I, I have a, a, a big horse farm near Charlottesville, Virginia, and, and my mother, who was out uh, just to get gas and something the other day, said in, in Charlottesville, the gas at Costco yesterday, or no, I'm sorry, uh, earlier this week on Tuesday, uh, was $1.35 a gallon. 
which is oh, wow. shocking. Um, and if you remember before the before the financial crash in the summer of 2008, gas was up near $4 a gallon in a large, large swath of the country. And now what you see is, is as we record this on Thursday, the president's tweet that he had he had spoken with his quote friend Mohammed bin Salman. Remember that this quote friend is is largely assessed to have ordered the murdering and dismemberment of the journalist Jamal Khashoggi in uh, in 2018 at the consulate in uh, the Saudi consulate in Istanbul. Um, but he said he spoke to his friend MBS and they would open and they would come to some kind of um, uh, deal with the Russians to limit. Um, output to try to raise prices. Now, there were some West Texas producers who saw their stock uh, and the commodities trade rocket up 30% after that. Um, you know, and then the Russians subsequently, in, uh, in not too long after, denied that a call between Putin and MBS had even happened. So it's a bit opaque as to what's happened between them. Um, it has served today, uh, Thursday, at least to bolster some um, commodities prices. But where we go from here, um, it's with the demand having fallen through the floor, with people not driving, airlines not flying. Um, you know, if you look on any traffic map of any of any city in the United States, I mean, you could drive 125 miles an hour uh, on the <laughs> on the Washington Beltway and not see another car. Um, you know, it's that kind of demand crash. Um, and limiting the supply would seem to make sense in, in, in theoretically. Um, but we don't know where we're going from here. You know, time was, Morgan, that uh, OPEC, largely controlled by the likes of you know, Saudi Arabia, which was the, the producer of lowest cost, I hear somewhere 3 to $5 a barrel to extract it from the ground. But then you had big players such as Nigeria, Iran. Iran could hold the United States over a barrel, if you would, in, in 2006 and 2007. And some of these concerns led to $140 crude by uh, 2008. Uh, but then we saw a revolution happen in the United States, the shale oil patch revolution, uh, the, the Bakken patch. Uh, I, I remember a Bloomberg headline in 2012, North Dakota's oil production, which had surged to uh, a certain level in, in 2011, had already exceeded the output of, of OPEC member Ecuador. So you fast forward this eight years and I don't recall any period of OPEC looking so diminished and so kind of out of order. Time was that high oil prices were good for everyone. Yeah, I mean, you know, if you look back to that era, there, and you saw as many pieces as I did of, of about the roughnecks out on the patches in South Dakota, and uh, you know, all these guys rolling up in their pickup trucks like mine and and pulling down one hundred and fifty or two hundred or two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year by working incredible hours and overtime and they set up these it, yeah, Mc, almost, McDonald's in North Dakota's were offering $18 an hour. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was, it was literally the gold rush redux from the 1840s where, you know, there's gold in them, their hills where there's black gold in them, their hills. I mean, it's, uh, you know, you had Amer you had just the resurgence of the American oil industry, which had been crushed in the, in the seventies. Um, and you know, as with OPEC, which was so strong then, and you had the embargo, et cetera, you know, it was a policy of the Obama administration to really boost that and the Bush administration before them, um, given obviously the, the top two men in the Bush administration and their history in the oil business. Um, but it is amazing that, that, that 
has come to where we are now, which is the United States, as I mentioned earlier, is the largest net exporter of, of oil and, and fossil fuels on the planet. But you have a situation where the prices, as you rightly mentioned in 2008 in the summer, where oil was at just a shockingly high price, $130, $140 a barrel. It's, you know, a th- it's a fifth of that now, uh, if that. And that has left, you know, a lot of workers out of out of work out there. If you read the the great reporter and writer Charlie Leduff, his book about um, which I won't utter the name of on on public radio, but it's a a, a rather um, evocative title uh, that's called Blank Show, um, and he spent a lot of time out there talking to these guys at the height of this thing, and then sort of on the backside of this is when it all comes crashing down. Can you help me get in the head of Mohammed bin Salman? I'm thinking back to the Khashoggi murder yeah. in Turkey. And uh, has to have been the most expensive hit in history. If you do believe, as United States and Western intelligence has suggested, that he had to have had his thumbprints on this uh, this this awful murder and dismemberment with a hit team in the Saudi consulate in Turkey, mm-hmm. there's so much downside to that. If you look at Saudi Aramco's IPO, if you look at him being kind of regaled and 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 treated to tours of New York and Silicon Valley behind that, and venture capital firms are looking to get the kingdom's money, and then next thing you know, he's a pariah. Yeah, I, I, I far be it for me to get inside his head. Um, I don't like to <laughs> don't like to try to do that. Um, we report. I'm trying not trying not to be a psychoanalyst, but be that as it may, um, I think part of him thought it wouldn't matter. I think part of him thought no one would notice. Um, there's an outstanding new book out by Ben Hubbard in the New York Times entitled MBS, um, which is a hell of a read. Um, you know, this is a this is a young man. Don't forget, he is not. He's only in his early 30s. He is one of the most powerful people on the planet. He's one of the richest people, if not the richest person on the planet, outside of Vladimir Putin, um, who has enormous power and a complete and utter autocracy at his fingertips. His father is unwell. His father's in his mid eighties. Um, you know, there are episodic rumors. You see them as I do that the King has died. Um, MBS is in control. He's the, you know, the crown prince, he's the defense minister. He's prosecuted a really somewhat disastrous war in Yemen. Um, with, to the extent that his, his chief ally there, the UAE, um, uh, Prince Mohammed bin, bin Zayed has pulled his troops out of there. Um, I think in the in the final analysis, I thought you know he thought he could get rid of a critic. He has thin skin, um, and that no one would really make that big a fuss about it. Where the rubber hit the road was, you know, the Trump administration, the Secretary of State, Mr. Trump himself, other members of the um, high command were, you know giving them somewhat of the benefit of the doubt. Look, this is bad. It's really bad. But the Saudis are our allies. You saw a revolution on Capitol Hill um, led by one of the president's top allies up there, Lindsey Graham, um, Mm. who drove very hard to sanction the Saudis. There was bipartisan denunciations of the Saudis. That led to denunciations of the war in Yemen, um, which has killed, you know, by some estimates, hundreds of thousands of people by virtue of both violence and 
the, the worst humanitarian crisis in the world with children starving in the streets. Um, Jane Ferguson, whom I mentioned before, has done astonishing and multi-award winning reporting from the country, uh, which is not easy to get into and extraordinarily dangerous. But it's, you know, you've seen over the last 18 months since uh, Jamal was killed, um, a real kind of comeuppance for MBS in some ways, almost entirely of his own doing. You, you hear about the virtues of youth. Um, you also hear about the rashness of youth. Um, he's, um, you know, they've been in, they've been in confrontation with Iran as well. Mm. Um, you know, that's a very stark confrontation. Um, what what underpins that? It's the 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 struggle, the battle for the soul of Islam. What the the seed of Shiite Islam and Sunni Islam. I mean, I think at its at its core, yes. Um, I'm not a I'm not an expert on Iran or Saudi, but that goes to its core. Um, they are both theocratic governments. Um, you know, MBS has tried uh, at turns to to quote liberalize Saudi Arabia, whether it's the the um, baby steps towards allowing women to drive, allowing women in public cinemas, in public sports stadiums, those kinds of things. His great um, his great plan, um, you know, his, his vision 2030 plan, which is, you know, quite forward looking in that it sees that, you know, the, the gold between, you know, the energy beneath the ground is finite and the energy from the sun is limitless, at least for the next few billion years, trying to wean Saudi off of a, you know, one commodity economy. They don't produce anything else. Um, mm. You know, they don't do anything else. But yeah, I mean, there is a there is a significant um, aspect of this, which is a, you know a a Sunni versus Shia issue. I mean, there's a large Shia population in the eastern sections of Saudi near their their most productive oil fields. There was a huge contretemps a few years ago when the, the Saudi government executed a top Shia cleric there, um, which which was which enraged the Iranians. Um, you know, it is a it's an it's a rivalry that has largely begun to govern the entire Middle East. What happens, do you think, in your mind, if you play this out to these oil beholden uh, totalitarian states, if the price keeps collapsing, if you start to see single digit oil uh, sustainably, if this is a true depression, have you kind of worked it out in your mind? I mean, Saudi Arabia can certainly take the hit. It's banked a lot of money, and it, it's very cheap to take it out of the ground. But how does an Iran deal with with kind of chronically $10, $15 oil? How does a Nigeria, how does an Indonesia, how does a Venezuela, which is already nearing kind of failed state status? Um, well, taking them in reverse order, Venezuela is, you know, as you say, has the largest proven reserves on the planet. It is a a beyond horrific disaster, and God forbid, COVID nineteen goes widespread there because their healthcare system. Um, one of my colleagues, Marsha Biggs, was there right after the first of the year and did a very affecting series of reports out of out of Venezuela uh, with a very talented producer at the News Hour called uh, Frank Carlson um, about the um, just catastrophic conditions for healthcare there. You know, you're losing an entire generation of children either to malnutrition, stunted growth. Um, they don't go to school. And then you pile on top of that the fact that 15 years ago when Hugo Chavez uh, instituted Chavismo, which was essentially nationalizing the oil industry and, and taking these vast profits and pumping them into social welfare programs, um, their oil industry is now under such enormous sanction. Um, their only real clients are the Chinese and the Russians. 
um, and 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 they're in such hock to them that they're just basically trading, you know, oil for cash or oil for you know satisfying their debts on the back of sending the Russians and, and, and Chinese it's, you oil. You know, it's compounded by the fact that uh, uh, oil from the Orinoco Belt in Venezuela is some of the lowest quality, heaviest crude that uh, right now, especially in this market when there's such an abundance of it, you want the the easiest, sweetest kind of uh, extra virgin olive oil version of it. And and this stuff is practically, uh, it's being given away. They're, yeah, they're, they're paying and, you know, and certain the, people to take it. Their infrastructure is in such abominable shape. If you go out to the main, one of the main producing regions in Maracaibo in Western Venezuela, Lake Maracaibo might as well be an oil slick. I mean, you put your hands in the water and just come up with globs of of heavy heavy crude. Um, and then when you some of the other countries you mentioned, um, you know, take them to Iran. Iran, when you saw oil prices collapse in the late nineties, the uh, the students had their uprising. What was it in nineteen ninety nine? You saw the green movement in two thousand nine. Correlation is not causation, but it's much harder for. The government to keep control and to 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 to, to have uh, bank behind the subsidies if oil is in free fall. Of course, I mean, then and, and then you know the one country you didn't mention that I was gonna I was actually gonna throw in there is Iraq. Iraq mm. is you know ent- almost entirely dependent on its oil exports through the port of Basra. Um, you know, if you go to uh, the city of Kirkuk, which is often sort of now cliche. Uh, in, in, in a fit of cliche in journalism called oil rich, the um, oil infrastructure in Kirkuk is not in very good shape. And it's been so manipulated over the years that the oil there, which is, um, you know, the largest fields in Iraq is of very poor quality now. And it takes a lot of processing. But the Iraqis who have been, uh, they finally reached a deal with the Kurds several years ago. And I've been to those Kurdish oil fields on 130 degree days. There was a, a a deal finally reached because the central government was not sending any of the uh, any of the money that the Kurds were producing um, through their national oil sales back to the Kurds, and the Kurds had cut side deals with the Turks, um, which is somewhat counterintuitive. But they had a very very lucrative pipeline deal going with the Turks, and then when you move east to Iran, you know as you as we discussed earlier, COVID nineteen has forced everyone inside, which you know, with the cascading oil prices going down and everything is probably, you know, in the eyes of the regime, a benefit that they are not allowed out on the streets because there would be another, um, uh, you know, you could, you could certainly forecast another, another uprising of some kind there. Um, you know, they've, they put it down very brutally, um, when it, when there was an uprising last year, um, and, you know, went back to the playbook that they used in 2009 and killed many more people by some analyses. But, you know, they're at, the, the people of Iran have suffered such an enormous amount through these years that if you look at the government's bottom line being knocked down another 25 or 30 percent, in addition to all of its other economic activity, both black and gray market that it does, um, you see, you know, not failed state there because the state is quite strong. Um, but calamity. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Morgan Till, senior producer for foreign affairs at PBS NewsHour. Uh, Morgan, uh, I am interested and I'm, I'm very worried, frankly, and a lot of people, not just, you know, in the mercenary world of Wall Street, but uh, NGO people are, are, are terrified of the second and third order effects of this jumping to very poor developing markets. You think about India, you think about uh, Nigeria, if you've been to Lagos, or, or the Niger Delta, where there's absolutely no infrastructure, no ability, 
nothing that can kind of keep this in check. I, I wonder what's going on in India right now, which has kind of been politically volatile unto itself. You have this this order for uh, for people to stay inside, but it's such a populous country. It's it's so unwieldy control. Uh, there's so many people, uh, so many different uh, constituencies there that you really can't get your head around this idea of keeping a country that big and unwieldy under quarantine. Well, and also one that's that's so underdeveloped. Um, you know, if you look every year, the the UN does World World Toilet Day to spotlight um, the fact that hundreds of millions of people on the planet, if not billions, don't have access to routine hygiene and sanitation. And the belts in Uttar Pradesh and other parts of India are just shocking, where people have no access, not only not to f- to fresh water but no routine sewer systems or hygiene of any kind. Then you put this, uh, the, great, the, the great crowding of the country. Uh, and when Prime Minister Modi last week put down this diktat that everyone would stay inside for several weeks, it left a lot of migrant workers, internally migrant workers, out holding the bag. I mean, you saw these heartbreaking stories of men saying, I've got to walk 400 miles home because they didn't get the last train. Separate and apart right. from the fact that you look at the train stations before this order and you know it looks like Times Square on New Year's Eve, the most mm. unhealthy and unsafe packing of people trying to get on trains to go home, um, you know, they – it, it boggles the mind when a country that is, you know, separate from its economic power, which it is an economic power, but it is still a vastly underdeveloped country without anything approximating the health system to handle something like this. Um, you know, I was talking to one of my one of my colleagues in Bangladesh. Also, there is terror in the world's largest refugee camp in in um, in Cox's Bazar, where there, th- I think almost a million or over a million Rohingya Muslims who fled Myanmar. These are people who are living in tents under tarps, um, in makeshift uh, shanties, also no routine hygiene, no routine um, sewer systems, no routine fresh water. Um, The nightmare scenario, which we've covered several times on the news already and we'll go back to, is what happens when this gets into these really struggling refugee populations that are already underfunded. If you look at whether it's Myanmar, uh, whether it's Bangladesh or Myanmar, or or the uh, Congo, or the Congo. I mean, DRC will, (laughs) I'm reliably told that on April 12th, DRC will declare its Ebola emergency over, but now it has COVID. And that is one of the nastiest wars on the planet and is a multi-sided, brutal conflict in a country that's, you know, just an enormous... Uh, intractable place. Um, When you get into these countries that are so underfunded and so under-resourced, this will go like wildfire. I mean, if this is bending the United States in some respects, its largest city to a breaking point, God forbid it's in Kinshasa or Lagos or, you know... um, or in the refugee camps of northern northwestern Syria, or in or Turkey. even in South Africa, where you have many people from Zim in Johannesburg living in these these big shanty towns. And Zimbabwe has closed their borders um, in an effort to. Um, we have a piece upcoming on the news hour about how Uganda is handling this, since they have such enormous experience um, dealing with Ebola and Marburg and and so many viral outbreaks through the years. How they're preparing to deal with that there, with with uh, you know a, still a developing country, but one with a lot of experience dealing with these kinds of outbreaks. 
you know, one of the themes that you're hitting on is how, uh, you know, you want, whether you look at Brazil or you look at the Philippines or Hungary, which right now is under Prime Minister Viktor Orban, you've heard rumors that maybe it should be booted from the European Union, that uh, strong men are using this as an excuse to consolidate power. Um what do you, what do you make of that? That this is I'm thinking back to Lincoln suspending the writ of habeas corpus yeah. in an emergency during the Civil War, but others are are using this to throw people in jail on trumped up charges of of endangering the public, even though they're political opponents. Uh, we've had Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro. Uh, he's been kind of flamboyant on TV. He's downplayed the infectiousness of the virus. He went on TV to tell Brazilians that that quarantine measures were absurd. What do you make of all that? Before this outbreak, there was this sort of notion of the age of the authoritarian, whether it's whether it's Xi Jinping, uh, Vladimir Putin, uh, Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, people with more authoritarian inclinations like Viktor Orban, like Jair Bolsonaro, people with great populist bases um, who had come to the fore at a particularly delicate moment. Um, starting with Orban, I mean, he has... Um, he has made many anti-democratic moves of the last several years. So this is Hungary. This is a, a European Union member. This is a stalwart, you know, came out of the Iron Curtain in the late 80s. And it's, it's, it's been taken for granted, what, for 30 years? Yes. I mean, it's not only an EU member, but it's a NATO member. Um, and, you know, not only do you have NATO, just a separate quick thing, you have NATO looking at, at anti-democratic moves by Recep Tayyip Erdogan in Turkey. Then you have Orban, who has made all kinds of efforts to neuter the courts. He's now had passed through the parliament in recent days. Um, essentially, his rule by decree. Um, there are efforts underway in the European Parliament um, in Brussels to have uh, his party, the Firdosh party, I think that's the way you say it, kicked out of the European Parliament. Um, this is, you know, uh, the next door to Hungary or just to the to the northwest is Belarus, and and oftentimes uh, Lukashenko, the the president of Belarus, is referred to as Europe's last dictator. Well, Europe might get another one here pretty soon. Um, it's a it's a very concerning situation. His deeply nativist, deeply populist uh, rule, his revanchist, um, sometimes flirting with anti-Semitism, often flirting with anti-Islamic uh, statements, his his absolute refusal to uh, absorb any of the refugees that came in in 2015 uh, during the, the huge, huge outpouring from the Syrian war when the Russians got involved there, um, you know, this is where the mechanisms of the European Union are are kind of exposed. Um, it's a Euro it's a union largely based on uh, collective collective progress towards no more war on the continent and your economic stability. The the mechanisms for enforcing democratic ideals, um, you know, there are far better, uh, more knowledgeable people on the mechanisms of the EU out there than I, but they don't seem to be that strong right now. I mean, and you have an enormously indebted EU member, a, a massive economy in Italy being a ground zero for this coronavirus. Spain, it's still seeing its death count uh, accelerate. And, you know, it, well, we're all trying to get our heads around the various secondary tertiary uh, uh, ripples of of this pandemic. I mean, to say nothing of the debt crisis that, that was, you know, the, the debts of these various economies were mutualized in 2012 and 2013. I mean, Germany is on the hook. Germany and France, to a certain extent, are on the hook for the fiscal health, the monetary health of the entire 
subcontinent. Yeah, and in, in, in 2012 and 2013, was when I was reporting on an economic crisis in Europe, the Greeks were just outraged at the Germans. I mean, there were posters in the streets of Athens of Angela Merkel dressed as a Nazi because the German banks were so overleveraged with Greek debt that she was just putting the screws to the Greeks. Um, but now what you see um, coming forward is, yes, you have highly indebted countries. Uh, Italy's got one of the highest debt-to-GDP ratios of any country on the planet because largely people don't pay their taxes. Um, now struggling under this virus that has broken one of the the premier health systems in, in Western Europe. Also under, and, and as Italy has had, what, 60 governments in the last 50 years, they now have a more mm-hmm. moderate government, but they had a, a quite revanchist government in power up until recently that, that went four square against refugee and admitting uh, uh, refugees and asylum seekers. And now you have this enormous calamity on their hands that is, you know, as, as the global economy was starting to cool, uh, as we saw Chinese growth dip below 6%, and you saw uh, an, uh, you know, a general sort of cycling down of the economy. The U.S. economy was going great guns, but a lot of others were starting to slow down. Um, this is, you know, disaster upon disaster. You can end up, you know, they've got well over 10,000 dead in Italy. They've got over 10,000 dead in Spain, also a country that's, uh, you know, um, economically fragile at the moment. And where the chips fall on this crisis, I don't think anyone has a good handle on. I do think that you're looking at, at, at years and years of misery in a lot of sectors and a lot of countries and a lot of dead people on, uh, after this is all said and done. Morgan, do you buy uh, the, the, the bookkeeping from Beijing? I mean, this country ascended to the World Trade Organization back in 2001, and it's just been gangbusters growth for the most part since. They've never truly felt a hard landing, even coming after 2007, 2008. You saw that that infamous stat of all the, the concrete that they used in three years mm-hmm. following the financial crisis was more than the United States used in the entire 20th century. Something doesn't smell right. I mean, for the country that was that was the, 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 the starting point of this uh, pandemic, having to shut down all these cities of 10, 11, 12, 15 million people, suddenly expressing that they see economic green shoots? There has always been concern uh, about the opacity of China in in every respect, in many respects, both its governance, its human rights record, uh, its economic numbers. Um, you know, they hold so much American treasury debt. Um, you know, it, there's the old saying, if, if, I owe, if, if I owe someone a hundred bucks, they own me. If I owe them a million dollars, I own them. Um, so there's an interdependence between the U.S. and Chinese economies that the Trump administration, um, you know, has been trying, as, as you well know, through tariff policy and trade war and all these other things, to try to sort of break a lot of linkages there. Um, but there are a lot of people who don't trust the numbers out of China on their economic growth and other things, um, and that they've cooked the books not only not only possibly on on COVID nineteen, but on their economic numbers for a long time. It it is a concern, um, especially as um, you know uh, there is there's a school of thought that that says that the Chinese looked at two thousand eight and said the United States almost failed. The United States. The global financial system backed by the United States almost collapsed, and they looked at that, looked at that moment as a, a moment to make their move, and they've been strengthening themselves economically. They've been much more aggressive on foreign policy. They have an expeditionary foreign policy, expeditionary economic policy in the form of the Belt and Road Initiative, which is you mm-hmm. know, just this – 
trillion dollar immense project to build ports and railways all throughout Asia, Southeast Asia. They own ports in Italy. They are, you know, building railways in Ethiopia at these often usurious terms whereby if, if people don't pay up, um, there's already they take the resources. They 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 own whatever they built. This has already happened in Sri Lanka. So there is. But you a, are seeing the flip side of this is that there are there are Chinese people splayed across the developing world. If you go in sub-Saharan Africa again, you're talking about northern Italy. You're talking about Iran, the Tehran subway system, and that's where maybe kind of tracing the the path of this pandemic tells us that the the pitfalls, the pratfalls of of the globalized flat world. Indeed. Morgan, in the few minutes we have left, I'd like to take you to uh, where, where it's typically been all quiet. I know you're a huge New York Yankees fan, and our beloved Manhattan, I lived there for a decade, is now the U.S. ground zero for this uh, shocking, shocking pandemic. You're talking about overflowing emergency rooms, uh, people hold up in their their small studios and the like. I wonder uh, how this is being perceived at the otherwise ho-hum U.S.-Canada border. I'm thinking about that gorgeous bridge uh, on the, you know, by Love Canal, Niagara Falls. Um, and I'm even, you know, all these states in New England suddenly worried about New Yorkers branching out and finding Airbnbs and summer homes. Is this going to cause necessarily, definitionally, uh, some sort of border crisis between the United States and Canada? I don't know that we're there yet, simply simply because um, U.S.-Canada trade is a, you know, they're our, you know, our largest trading partner, um, uh, the United States' largest trading partner. And comparatively, Canada's population is, is less than one-tenth of the United States. Um, there are significant border crossings every day for work, but, you know, the Canadians have their own outbreak. The prime minister's wife was was diagnosed with COVID nineteen. Um, you know, the prime minister himself was in quarantine. Justin Trudeau. Um, you know, it doesn't strike me that it it will lead to that kind of thing. But there was talk of of the president militarizing the border, which would be a shocking break with tradition. It's the largest uh, non militarized border in the world. You know, it doesn't occur to me that that it's gotten to the point now. God knows what's going to happen. Well, why why shouldn't it be there? Washington State is an epicenter of this. People travel freely between Seattle and Vancouver. You think about Detroit, Detroit and Windsor, Canada. You think about all the people who go partying uh, in Montreal or Toronto who day trip it from from Manhattan or from Albany. That's not to say that there aren't more significant border checks and border controls. What I'm saying is that there, it doesn't seem to me to be a border crisis. Um, you know, as if you said, there's on the southern border, uh, it's a different matter. You, you've seen the meme where um, uh, Mexicans on social media were saying maybe we should pay for the wall to build it so Americans can't come south because they've got all the, the COVID 19. Well, you saw those spring breakers. What were they in Texas that crossed the border and then brought it back? What, 25 cases at a time? It definitely turns the prevailing wisdom of just two, three months ago on its head. Yeah, it does. Um, you know, I think one of the one of the things I keep thinking about is how this shakes out in American society itself. We we are this you know proverbial melting pot, and a and a riven one at that right now. Um, but how does this shake out for the long term? Um, you know, you you referenced earlier the governor of Rhode Island saying they wanted to turn back people with New York plates. The governor of Florida, who's been extraordinarily late to institute stay-at-home orders, wouldn't even close the beaches in many parts of the state until you know. And I don't believe he still has. Um, well, Florida is its own country, of course. But go yeah, ahead. Um, it's its own planet. Um, you know, there <laughs> whether or not you can. Um, 
you know, you see the numbers of New Yorkers already in Florida with their cars hauled down from New York to, you know, the, the, the winter um, snowbirds who are down there. It's notions that you can stop people at the border because of their license plates uh, is not something I've ever heard of. Um, and sort of and you see this play out in the byplay among the states over resources, bidding against each other for ventilators, for personal protection equipment, um, for scarce resources that everyone is scrambling for on a global scale, going overseas and looking for them. Um, you know, it's it sparked a, um, you know, a real kind of Hobbesian element in and among the states that is, you know, it's and it's happened so quickly that it's jarring to see. And I think how this plays out over the over the, over the next years and, and frankly decade is going to be you know simultaneously fascinating but also kind of heart wrenching to see. Quickly, Morgan. I mean, who do you lament that we have have short shrifted that we're not paying enough attention to across this this massive but tiny planet? I really think people need to make, pay more attention to um, refugees and underdeveloped countries. Um, as I've mentioned a couple times, you know, those populations, there were more people on the move than at any time since World War II, more people displaced by war, conflict, economic calamity, um, on the order of 70 million people. Um, the organizations that are trying to house and feed and care for them are chronically underfunded. Um, you saw the 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 um, director of, of the World Food Program, uh, the former South Carolina governor, David Beasley, had, had contracted COVID-19. These groups are doing astonishing work uh, in a, appalling conditions. And God forbid that this virus gets into those populations because it will run rampant and go right through them um, because there are no facilities to care for those people. And then, you know, we had we spoke with the U.N. Secretary General, Judy Woodruff, on the news hour last Friday. Um, and he said his great nightmare is that this gets into the underdeveloped nations of sub-Saharan Africa um, because there are hundreds of millions of people um, in countries that are, are mo- many of them fragile on a good day. Um, and that that is what concerns me. I mean, there was a report um, just out today about indigenous populations in Brazil where uh, a woman had contracted it. You know, there are hundreds of indigenous tribes um, that Bolsonaro uh, – who can frankly, you know, wend his way into overtly racist rhetoric sometimes has made his job to try to take some of their forest away to give to agrarian interests and cattle interests and other things. Um, it goes into those populations of people who live in, live in deep in the jungle and have no medical facilities. Um, you're looking at, you know, um, a, just an awful calamity. Morgan Till, Senior producer for foreign affairs at the PBS NewsHour, which I think is the best thing going on on TV news, bar none. You know, I'm conflicted. I've done a couple of pieces for you guys, uh, but you are always welcome on this show. And, and God willing, on the other end of this, I will treat you to a sumptuous Persian dinner up in Northern Virginia. Indeed, I look forward to it. Thank you. Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. This show airs on NPR member station VPM News. On the NPR One app, which I cannot live without. It is so clutch, especially right now. And on Apple Podcasts at link fulldradio.com. Please subscribe. I'm Robin Farzad. Hang in there. Back with you next week. Next week.